Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Welcome to the New Books and Alcohol, Drugs, and Intoxicants, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jen Wang. This podcast features conversations and discussions with scholars and experts across diverse fields on the recently published books about substance use. My goal for this podcast is to bridge the gap between academic and public knowledge on drugs and their implications for individuals and societies. For more information about the podcast, please go to newbooksandalcoholdrugsintoxicants.com or follow us on Tumblr at New Books and Drugs. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, welcome to New Books in Alcohol, Drugs, and Intoxicants. We're here today with Dr. Karen Wise, who is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at West Virginia University. And we're here today to talk about her new fascinating book, Party School, Crime, Campus, and Community, which examines the consequences of extreme partying and drinking for students and others in the college community. So welcome, Karen. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> so can you um, please tell us a little bit about yourself, um, about your intellectual and research trajectory and how you came to study where you're studying? Sure. Well, as you just mentioned, I'm a, I am an associate professor at West Virginia University, and I teach um, in the areas of, of crime and specifically victimization. And my research, um, which much of in the past has been on sexual victimization, has really been geared uh, recently towards campus crime and, and specifically alcohol-related crime. Mm-hmm. So um, 
so, yeah, w- what I've been working on for the last mm, three or four years is really uh, something that I call intoxicate- intoxication crime, which are crimes where either the offender, victim, or both parties are drunk or, or high on drugs at the, at the time. And, and so, really, that's what... Um, uh, I've been working on in terms of research and really where the book came into play was um, sort of as I was looking at the crimes that take place um, at on the college campus and in the surrounding areas, it became very obvious to me that the majority of those crimes were really related to students drinking and drug use. And, and so I just became very interested in, in sort of examining that in a, in a much more specific way. Okay, so it is through your interest in um, intoxicants and crime that you came to um, focus on the whole college community and um, the partying uh, lifestyle that uh, is inherent in the party school, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a great environment for looking at intoxication crime because, I mean, in my estimate, just from my own research and certainly from what many people have done on college crime, if you eliminated the the partying, the intoxication, the you know, especially the extreme intoxication. You have very little crime on most college campuses. It, it really is it's a problem that is related to alcohol and drugs primarily. Yeah. Um, so how would you define um, a party university? What are some of the characteristics associated with um, the typical quote unquote party university? Well that's actually an excellent question, and I do actually take a lot of time in my introductory chapters to do that because, you know, there's partying, drinking and drug use on ever, you know, probably every college campus in the United States and, you know, abroad. Um, but what I was looking at is really um, an extreme version of that. And so a party university to, to me really became, I mean, the typical party university can be, um, defined by by a few characteristics. They're usually large, more than 10,000 um, undergraduates. Uh, they tend to be located in geographically isolated areas. Uh, they they have a large proportion of their of their undergraduate students living either on campus or right outside of campus in so-called college towns. Uh, they also have a lot of traditional students, so the younger students right out of high school, 18 to 24. Um, and, you know, very importantly, there's a very large Greek life, and probably most importantly, that they're usually sports-oriented. So they take a real lot of pride in both their sports and this drinking culture. I mean, that's really what the uh, typical part of the university looks like. Mm-hmm. So really strong um, athletic um, department. Um, yeah, and in the more suburban area, more rural area. Yeah, well, isolated. I think that's the real the real key. So the students come to these schools, and there's very little else to do if they're living here. They're not close to urban environments, and so you just tend to have when there's nothing much more to do, when they have easy access to the alcohol, which is actually a, a very common phenomenon in these college towns where there's a lot of alcohol outlets. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it all sort of coalesces into this, uh, this what I've been calling in the book a party subculture. So this, uh, this very strong cultural norm that, you know, you study during the days or you head to classes and then at night you get together and, and 
go out drinking or stay in drinking, and a lot of times it's a little close. And so that's that's what ends up happening in these um, in these party universities. And of course, there's lists of so-called party schools that come out every year that mm-hmm. do their own calculations of you know that the the students self-identify as drinking a lot and using marijuana, what they call reefer madness, and then they they calculate it, they compare it against how much the students self-identify as studying, and so they get, you know, these students who are very strong in the party lifestyle and very weak in the studying, and, and, you know, and it's all self-identified, which I think is really important because... Students who strongly identify with the party subculture um, make, you know, together make, uh, you know, put these their schools on the party school list, mm-hmm. and then it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where they are very proud to have their school on the list, and so you see the same schools on these lists, you know, year after year after year, and it's really because of the students themselves are really identifying that way. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that um, you emphasize on the whole identification part aspect of this, um, of how students identify with, um, you know, being a party animal or being at a party university. But surely not all students um, feel that way, right? Or are, prou- are, are proud of the fact that their school is, you know, on a list of top 10 party schools. No, not at all. In fact, there's, there are, you know, uh, some students who are incredibly embarrassed about it. And as they get close to graduation, they're actually worried about it, you know, but but it's sometimes it's the same students who were thrilled to come to a party school, and so, you know, they loved it during their freshman, sophomore year, and then there's sort of a transitional shift as they begin to realize that, you know, they're going to be in the job market pretty soon, and now they have to defend, you know, their degree to some to some extent, so there, there's a lot of, of variation, yes, and, and the label itself and where students feel um, or how they feel about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And a lot of them actually know that it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. So like like a mix, um, there's some positive um, aspects and also some negative aspects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I think it's easy to forget since I wrote the book really to highlight the problems. But, <laughs> it's, but it's easy to forget that, I mean, they have a lot of fun. You know, it's fun to go to a party score. They, they have fantastic memories. They, you know, as alumni, they get together and they can laugh about these great weekends they had and these crazy pranks. And so, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to, you know, I mean, it's, and it's one of the reasons why these schools are so popular and, and, and you know, and they uh, entice a lot of students to come because there really are some benefits for the students themselves, despite the fact that there's, you know, a pretty ugly underside to um, to sort of what's going on right now at these schools. Yeah, so I guess let's um, focus a little bit on the ugly side of extreme <laughs> partying since you're mentioning that right now. Um, so what are some of the dangers and negative consequences that um, um, come to find associated with the whole party subculture? Well, I and I found actually quite a bit, and it was, for me, it was disturbing. I think it probably would be disturbing for anybody who has children at these schools uh-huh. or certainly from a faculty perspective where, you know, because during the day, everything looks fantastic and students are very pleasant and polite and follow all the rules. But there's just something about this party situation, you know, the situation at night when they're together. And of course, there's a lot of alcohol involved, oftentimes the drugs. And so what I did was I outlined, um, 
three basic harms, the, the, the direct harms to the users themselves. So the students mm-hmm. who are partying, whether it's late, you know, and the late partiers really don't have too many problems. It's when they start drinking heavily after, uh, you know, eight or more drinks and they're going out three or more nights a week. And then you've got these really extreme partiers who literally barely um, put any effort into their academics. It's really all about the partying. And so they themselves have a lot of uh, negative consequences. It's just, the, the, you know, the nature of the beast that they're they're very vulnerable when they're that drunk. And so I actually uh, do a lot of calculations in terms of their risks uh, with the more that they party. And I will, just as a couple of examples, um, what I found was when I actually uh, distinguished uh, between the types of partiers, light, heavy, and, and extreme, mm-hmm. we see that the, the risks in almost every category of harms, including crimes, really go up considerably. So, for instance, you've got um, only 3% of these lighter partiers that actually are injured due to accident, but it goes up, up to almost 20% for the heavy partiers, and then it's 34% for these extreme partiers. So, you know, a third of these students uh, are having accidents at some point when when they're drunk, and then the illnesses are similar, 17% for light partiers, 32% for heavy partiers, and then it's almost half for the extreme partiers, and it's crazy for what they call blacking out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, you know, it's a very common phenomenon that I haven't quite gotten a, a real handle on exactly how they're defining this blacking out, I mean, other than what generally people say, which is that you forget that you've done things and you can't, you have no memory. And you know, we've got 81% of extreme partiers say at some point they've blacked out, which, um, you know, to me, is a, <laughs> that's very disturbing. And that happens multiple times, you know, during during the course of their, their uh, students' careers. So you've got a lot of these risks to the direct users, which are a problem in and of itself from an outsider's perspective. Now, mind you, they don't see it as a problem. They -hmm. actually think it's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. They, you know, it bonds them. They have something to talk about with their friends. And and so they really brush it off as some kind of collateral damage, you know, which is bound to happen, stuff happens. What I spend a couple of... uh, you know, chapters talking about are really the the harms that happen to people who aren't partying <laughs> from mm-hmm. these partiers. And so, you know, I call those the indirect or the secondhand harms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got about um, a 20% of our students who don't drink at all. They don't touch drugs. They are here to learn. That's their, their purpose for being here. And they, they've got a lot of frustrations from, from uh, their fellow party party or students and um, so even if the students themselves aren't partying they're they're around the, the partying and so they're they're um, you know some of the harms that they're experiencing are things like you know the, the, the massive amounts of litter from just student you know the, the students drinking and, and dropping their trash that um, the noise mm-hmm. from parties that last until four in the morning uh, there's a real problem with harassment verbal harassment, and sometimes it can get physical from students who just get wasted and lose all sensibility of, <laughs> of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the, the non-partiers have really had to change their, um, their, just their regular routines to avoid being around certain areas of town on Friday and Saturday nights. 
sometimes they won't even go to sporting events because, you know, so many of the students in the student sections are so wasted that it becomes uncomfortable for them. So so that's a real impact, I think, um, for the non-partiers. And then, of course, everybody else in the, in the college town is impacted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got a – when you live in a, a college town where there's a, a big party subculture, you also have to avoid, you know, certain areas of town and learn to um, – just sort of do things that you wouldn't regularly do just because you know that there's a potential that your car could be vandalized or there's a potential that, um, you know, somebody can walk by and vomit on your sidewalk. And it's just a lot of things that people don't think about until you actually start living in these areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and I, you know, at some point in in, um, one of the chapters, I sort of thought of it and um, because I am a criminologist and I, I compared it to sort of, gangs that live in a neighborhood. It's, it's almost as if they, they've taken the neighborhood's hostage, these uh-huh. extreme partiers. And I, you know, I, there's a, a, um, a narrative from one of my, uh, my, um, respondents in the, in the book about, um, which, uh, she was describing as a drive by egging. And it, and it was just, it was so, Peculiar for me to listen to, to to read or her words um, from the interview uh, from the uh, the survey and to to think about it and go yeah of course it's not lethal it's not gunshots but it's crazy just out of the blue you know when you're sitting on your porch at night and somebody drives by and throws eggs at you out of out of the blue it's just that kind of thing that really um, has has just made it a little bit um, uninhabitable in parts of these college towns. Yeah, and it seems like um, it's a minority of the students that actually don't participate in these kind of um, ritual. You know, a minority of the students are uh, non-partiers, right? Right, only only about 21% don't party at all. Um, But there are a lot of partiers who are very responsible. Um, But, you know, but the the numbers really are, it's about 60% are either in this heavy or extreme category. So more than half of the students who who are partying are doing it extensively. Mm -hmm. So what do you think differentiates between these different categories? So between what are some of the characteristics associated with the extreme partiers versus perhaps, you know, the heavy ones um, versus the light ones? Um, Well, some of the... I mean, certainly, and it's probably not very surprising that um, the, the extreme partiers have the lowest GPAs. I mean, they really are not um, here to to learn. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, in fact, a lot of the the most extreme partiers do flunk out by the end of the year, or they're put on probation. I mean, it's 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 probably overwhelmingly the number of students who drop out by the end of or are kicked out by the end of the first year are because of these issues where they just get caught, they got caught up in, in this lifestyle. Um, more men than women are in the extreme category. Although it's interesting, there's not a significant difference in the heavier party category. So when you actually measure it, um, just in terms of the frequency of how often <clears throat> they're drinking, um, when you distinguish between the, um, the amount of drugs they're using and, of course, when they're drinking, how many drinks they drink, just between those two categories, and you, and you look at the heavy, which isn't the, the top 14%, which are the extreme, but this, mm-hmm. this you know, it's 
more than the light partiers, but uh, but not as much as the extreme. There's actually no difference in the women and the men. So a lot of women are really partying hard. They're just not to the absolute extremes as uh, this 14%. That's primarily men. Um, we do see slightly more uh, um, of the students who are involved in Greek life mm-hmm. who are extreme partiers and athletics. Which is which actually surprised me because I think my uh, stereotype of athletes was that they're you know they're busy <laughs> busy yeah. being athletes, but yeah, the reality is that they have off time, and uh, during their off time, I guess they're they're making up um, for uh, you know for when they're in training. So we we do see athletes actually uh, more likely to be in the extreme categories as well. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's disturbing too, you know, the fact that you mentioned how women and men, there's really no difference in terms of um, how much they party. But we also know that women um, suffer more consequences um, associated, associated yeah. with that. Yeah, well, in terms of illness, it, some there's in some categories there really isn't a gender difference, but certainly women who are drinking the same amount as men are going to feel it more primarily just because of their size. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times they're just smaller. And so they, you know, if they're going to drink seven drinks and so is a man who's a lot larger, yes, she would be more likely to feel the consequences in terms of illness. And certainly uh, women are more likely to be raped and sexually assaulted and that. Um, now, on the other hand, men are more likely to get into fights and uh, to be injured in other ways. So they're and their accident rates are, I think, slightly higher as well. So, But again, it's probably because they are uh, doing a little bit more in terms of the, the drinking and, and experimenting more with the drugs. Mm-hmm. So can you explain a little bit about the whole idea of um, the situated theory of uh, normativity? I think that's one of the theories that you cited. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I have to say, I mean, one of the, I, I wrote the book with three broad questions in mind. I mean, one was I wanted to understand the frequency of intoxication crime and and certainly look at the problems associated with it. And I wanted to understand the consequences for, you know, the surrounding areas. But one uh, one of the questions that was really quite important to me was, um, why these negative consequences have become so normal? Mm-hmm. And it really did. It, it fascinated me because, again, I see these students as a teacher. <laughs> you know, I, I, they seem very pleasant to me. And so when I was hearing so many anecdotes about the nastiness, the just the, the as I said, the, the harassment that sometimes borderlines on real hate crimes that could happen, and certainly all of the crime and the bad behavior. I mean, students who party also are more likely to. To be, you know, to, to to do criminal activities themselves, to get involved, they're they're getting a lot of citations from you know underage drinking and public nuisance and all of these other things. And so I really wanted to understand why, with all of this going on and all of these consequences, why it had become so normal, and why so many of the students just see it as a normal way of of college life. And so what I started to think about was this idea of situational normativity, which is when you, so certain behaviors that could be incredibly deviant and, you know, and everybody would agree are crimes in certain situations are all of a sudden when you maneuver them into a, into a very specific situation, they, you know, the, the values around them change. And so 
things like the whole, uh, um, you know, urinating on somebody's rose bushes or something so, that seems so silly. And you kind of go, well, you know, most people know that's wrong. Mm-hmm. But somehow in the party situation, which, uh, you know, I sort of define the party situation is very specific. It's, it's, it's almost always nighttime, except for the, 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 with the exception of when there's a game, a football game day. Is a, is a different type of party situation, uh, and that's during the day often. But for the most part, the party situation is at night, you know, maybe after 11 p.m. Um, it's usually around certain areas of the college town, either in their own student-oriented neighborhoods, certainly near bars at these fraternity parties or house parties. Um, you know, it has a lot to do with who's in the audience, so there are usually, you know, groups of them together. Almost everybody is drunk, um, and and they, you know, the norms just um, encourage bad behavior. So the same bad behavior that if you take it out of that situation, everybody would agree is wrong, just becomes normal when it's in the party situation. And it's just this whole the normalization around being wasted and having, you know, intoxication excuse bad behavior. So... Um, so that's really what I, I started delving into and asked a lot of questions that tried to get at um, what they were thinking in terms of why certain behaviors were okay when they were drunk. And I tried to explain it with their rationales and, you know, how they were justifying it. And, um, you know, I, I have to say I'm still a little baffled. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, from their perspective, it's just it's okay when they're drunk. It just cha- it, it it changes the the rule book a bit. Yeah, so it's something that even though they probably know it can be really serious, I'm thinking especially with the whole uh, maybe sexual assault or something or sexual victimization um, on women. But it seems like even the women are um, able to just brush it off, you know, or blame themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot. Well, a lot of times the. Um, be, again, because everybody's sort of uh, wasted and they begin to question, the, the, the victim themselves might question whether or not it really happened or if it happened the way they remember it happened. And, and then, of course, you get into issues where they can't, they don't feel comfortable telling anybody or reporting it because they don't want to be considered, you know, that snitch or disloyal to their peers or, or even making too much out of it, you know. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, they're almost convinced that. Yeah, you're right. They're they're also convinced in some degree that it's sort of normal and that it's a risk they have to take to be a part of the, um, you know, this party lifestyle. Because very few students are willing to really say, I will not be a part of this, because if they are, they're marginalized. They don't have much of a life here. It's such a strong culture that they just just feel like they're... um, they're not a part of the school if they're not, you know, willing to drink and, and make light of all of these things because uh, then they become almost scapegoated as these complainers. So what are they doing here anyhow? If they, if, if they don't like the party, they shouldn't be here. And that's really what I, you know, I've, I heard a lot in the, in the survey responses. Yeah. So this idea of blaming the victims too. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Of, um, being, I think you mentioned, the pluralistic ignorance, how um, a lot of times, even when they see harm being done to their fellow student, a lot of times they wouldn't intervene. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, it's, it's 
you know, there's a lot of literature on bystander response and, and this idea that you've got a group norm where people don't intervene. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a line where somebody will obviously say, well, enough is enough, you know, but right. it's, it's a very gray, it's a very gray line. And, um, and if you look around and you want to do something, but nobody else seems to care and they're all watching impact entertained mm-hmm. to some degree, then you do feel like you're putting yourself out on the limb to be the only one who actually wants to intervene. And that's, yeah, unfortunately what ends up happening a lot of times with not just the, you know, the worst case scenario with seeing a sexual assault, but just fighting students will, you know, stand around and find that very entertaining and uh, just watch and see what happens. And, and sometimes students who are so unbelievably drunk to the point where they almost, you know, could die, that kind of uh, severe um, intoxication and, and, and students don't really know how to react. And of course, they also don't want to necessarily bring the, the police, um, to the situation because, of course, everybody's drunk and, you know, and there mm-hmm. is probably there's drugs around and then that's, you know, a problem with uh, self-incrimination and, you know, getting themselves into trouble. Yeah, so this, there's this whole idea of, first of all, they don't want to betray their, um, you know, other students. They don't want to be ostracized. And then there's also the second component where they don't want to kind of get themselves in trouble, especially I'm yeah. thinking if they're underage, which, you know, we all yeah. know they, they drink, you know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... Um, yeah, I mean, students don't turn 21 until, you know, sometimes late in their junior year. And so we know a lot of freshmen, sophomores are drinking. And, you know, we even in, in, the, in the survey statistics um, that uh, in, the, in the book, the, it doesn't really, there's very little difference in terms of age and who goes to bars, surprisingly, considering our laws. But, you know, we've uh, a lot of college towns have these types of bars where you can go in 18 with mm-hmm. the with the assumption you're not going to drink, which is ludicrous. <laughs> you're in the <laughs> bar, you're going to figure out a way to drink. So, um, yeah, the laws of, of the, the actual drinking age does not stop. I mean, I, I think everybody kind of knows that they, they really do very little to curb drinking before the age of 21 for sure. Yeah. But it does stop, but it does impact um, the willingness to bring the police into a situation where really, you know, if there's a fight or if there's something going on where 911 sh- really should be called and there's a, uh, there's a hesitancy to do that because of this fear of getting into trouble, it does create quite a, quite a problem. Yeah, so what do you think um, the police and the university personnel can do about this? What can they do about it? Yeah, what, what is, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How come well, all their efforts have been uh, pretty much uh, useless? <laughs> well, you know, the police, the police really try. It, it, they're in such a, I think I say they're damned if they do, damned if they don't at some point in the book. Uh-huh. Because, you know, the, the students don't like them interfering when they're doing their jobs, right, to, to get them off the streets and to, but, you know, and then you have the non-partiers who don't think they do half enough. And of course the, the non-student residents who really don't think the police do enough, but there's just so much. I mean, they, they, there's so much bad behavior going on um, at night, especially during the weekends that they just you'd need 5,000 on the police force to control it all. So there, so yes, we could, I think part of the solution really would be to step up enforcement if we had 
the ability to, you know, the, the resources for schools to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't think that's possible. Um, you know, it's something that schools are doing, and I think it's a, an, an easy fix, at least in terms of the safety, is are passing these medical amnesty mm-hmm. um, uh, policies, which is basically to to give the students a peace of mind that they're not going to get into trouble if they actually do pick up the phone and dial 911. And um, I, I, I mean, I think that's a fantastic policy. I know there's critics that, that don't like that because they're suggesting that then the school was endorsing, you know, this partying. But, you know, the reality is the partying is already going on. So I think in terms of, of um, harm reduction, it probably is very smart that at least the students can get themselves help without getting into trouble if, if they need to uh, call 911. Um, and then, of course, what the schools can do, you, you know, unfortunately, a lot of schools aren't doing anything yeah. <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, they, I, you know the, the, party, the party image uh, works for a lot of these schools, and so I don't know if they really want to necessarily change that. I mean, I think they do obviously want to keep their students safe, but there's, it's a little precarious for them to start um, really going after drinking and drug use because I think they're a little concerned that that might um, impact sort of this, uh, you know, come to our school to have a great time kind of image. Um, but, you know, schools around the country have been trying different things. You know, there's there's sort of laws passed about parties and, you know, and so they're enforcing the noise issues and, and some of the schools are really cracking down on any kind of bad behavior from students um, and, and just, uh, you know, the sanctions have increased and that kind of thing. Um, but I think in the long run, one of the, the best ways to handle the, the situation is, is probably from who these schools admit and, and sometimes it's impossible to know who you're admitting, but, you know, the, the issue is, and the students themselves say this in my own survey, they really would like the school, you know, these schools to be a little bit more selective uh-huh. because the, the thinking is that if you only allow in students with incredibly high GPAs, that, in fact, they are going to be less inclined to party you know, incessantly, and, and those are the ones who are causing the problems. And so, I, you know, I don't think anybody wants to completely get rid of having a good time at, at college. It's just to to curb the, ex, the extreme version of that where people are actually getting hurt in the process. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's going to happen either, you know, that's, but I, I do know that some schools are actually trying to do that as well. So, I, you know, they're trying. I don't – I'm not um, – highly confident that anything will, will help in the in the near future, but I do think something needs to change within the subculture itself because it's hard to um, it's hard to change a subculture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so there's so much tradition involved. Uh, you know, the students themselves don't even see things like, you know, burning couches. They don't get that that's arson. Um, or, or, you know, malicious burning. I mean, it's it's a felony in a lot of areas, and but the students don't see it that way because it, it's been passed down from generation to generation as a tradition at their schools. So it, that's the hardest part is to change a, 
subculture that really has become so entrenched in tradition. Yeah. Do you think it's actually possible to to do that to actually change the students' motivations and the whole ingrained rituals to party um, so extreme? I, I'm I'm not sure. I, I make a few suggestions in the conclusion of the book, and what I I think the only way you can do that is to you have to really reverse the norms that are in place. So for right now, some of these students are elevated in their status by being like a troublemaker, by, by, you know, doing these crazy things. And all Uh of a sudden they're like talked about, you know, that they're they're heroes within the subculture and they're rewarded and and all of the the bad behaviors reinforced. And there's, you know, deviance admiration and the students are entertained by it. You have to literally create an environment where now you're, where students who do anything bad are shamed. Mm-hmm. They're embarrassed. They're humiliated. You know, their their peers won't talk to them. I don't know how you get there, but that's really how how you would have to do it. And uh, my suggestion was, you know, you take the most, um, you know, the big superstars like athletes who you know people really um, admire at, at at a sports oriented school, like the biggest athletes or the coaches, and you get them to start the the norm shift. And you get those people to make announcements and say, listen, when you behave this way at our games, you're embarrassing us. Um, I I mean, that might be a start. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, for right now, a lot of students who come to to a party school are incredibly amused by their own bad behavior. And if you take like a sports event, it's actually televised. And... You know, I've heard comments from from students who 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 kind of think it's awesome. You know, in their own words, <laughs> it was awesome that um, they caught us. You know, having a, a big brawl after the game. You know, they they think that's actually funny and that it elevates their status as this party school. And so, until you can change the, re- the reward system, mm-hmm. and and you go back to the basics where students actually are proud to get. 4.0s or to, you know, to do something that's academically challenging and that kind of thing. I mean, but until you can do that, you're always going to have, you're going to be competing with the uh, the rewards that students get from the party subculture. Yeah, the social rewards. Um, yeah, do you think maybe perhaps if students are more, if they have more responsibilities or commitments, um, that that might perhaps... Um, decrease the chance of partying so irresponsibly? Actually, yeah. I, mean, I think you make a, a, a good point because certainly, a, um, you know, what we call a social bond theory would suggest that, uh, yeah, if, if you're more involved with conventional activity, uh, so academic um, organizations, or for that matter, working. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm working at a, at a job where there's promotion, you know, not just, a, you know, you're doing four hours behind the counter at a McDonald's, that kind of a job, but but a job where you really care about it and you want to grow and, and prove yourself and that kind of thing. Sure, there's A, less time to party, and you also get your rewards elsewhere. So, I mean, it would certainly make sense that, um, you know, and one of the things that I said was one of the criteria of a, of a typical party university is these traditional students. You do have a lot of students at schools that have, you know, a big culture of partying that really they're not working. They may do a few hours in part-time jobs, but they're not working. They don't have children. 
Um, they, they're not married. They, they have little responsibility outside of having to show up for classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it, it gives them a lot more leisure time. And, you know, and, and this creation of, of, you know, these social groups that, um, you know, then have all of these internal reward systems based on the, the amount they can drink. And, and again, all the crazy things that they do when they're drinking, it sounds strange to outsiders that that would elevate somebody's status, but it really does when, you know, when you, you don't really have all that much else uh, to be rewarded by, you you know, you take your partying very seriously and it, and it becomes something you're successful at. Yeah, it's a commitment to partying. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, a sense of self-identity. And I think it's definitely a really um, important issue, too. I think not only in isolated colleges, um, I think even in urban areas, too. Um, you know, there's all, students are always going to be partying. That's part yeah. of uh, the college culture as well. Uh, well, absolutely. I, I do. I, I, don't, I, I couldn't imagine there's too many schools where you don't have an element of drinking and, you know, a, a bit of the drug use. Uh, it, but it becomes just so much more pervasive when you've got these schools that are isolated where so many of the students live here and they have very few alternatives mm-hmm. for what to do on weekends. Mm-hmm. So it really just, it just exacerbates any kind of problem, um, you know, just given the isolation issue. But you're, but you're absolutely right. Every school has has an element of this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely a very interesting question. I think I feel even um, myself. I feel very torn about it because um, I went to USC, which is kind of a for undergrad, which is kind of a big um, party school. And um, I do remember, you know, it is it was really fun um, to party back in the day, but. Um, yeah, I, I do, you know, these consequences are very, um, very sobering and very disturbing. <laughs> well, but, but, it, but it's interesting that you, you say what you did because this is the, re- the reality is that most students come to these schools and they graduate and they go on with their lives and nothing bad, you know, ex- extensively bad happened to them. I mean, yeah, along the way, maybe they had some scrapes and, and bruises and, right. and blackouts and whatever and a mm-hmm. lot of hangovers, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But but nothing, you know, tragic happens. And so they really don't see, um, you know, what, what the problem is. They don't see any of it as a problem. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I think that is why it, it's perpetuated. Because until you actually see what it's doing to the outsiders of the, of the group. Because when you're partying yourself, you're taking the risks. Yeah. You, you know, you're voluntarily saying, listen, you know, if, uh, I'm... What's a few scrapes and, and bruises because I'm having a fantastic time. It's the other people who live around you that aren't um, voluntarily, you know, partying, and yet they are also um, taking on these risks. But but it is a. I mean, I but I I see that a lot. This sort of the, the normalization of all of this because really, in the long run, most people come out okay. The ones who have managed to get beyond their freshman year and, and, and I think it's learning the balance. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to, students who are successful in terms of graduating who also partied along the way learn eventually that you can only party, so, you know, this much, <laughs> this many hours and still study this many hours in order to actually pass classes and it's a learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> it's a learning process. Yeah. Yeah, but I think even that notion can be a little bit dangerous because I think when students 
um, learn how to balance it. Um, you know, maybe the increased tolerance or whatever for alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. They might, mm-hmm. you know, be less um, likely to stop because you know they might think that, you know, I've I got I got it all under control, even though they might not be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's actually a good point. I never thought about the, um, but you might be right that it, it, it can increase once they figure it, figure it out, then they actually can uh, party a little bit more. And, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, um, when I actually looked at, you know, with the assumption that most people would party more their early years and their latter years, there seems to be a last hurrah in the senior year, uh-huh. um, at least from my survey responses, where they kind of, I, I, what I think they were thinking was that it's, they're sort of their last chance, they're about to graduate, let's, you know, give it one more, um, you know, one more one uh, time. Um, <laughs> one yeah. party. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the junior year that they seem to lay the lowest and really try and 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 uh, do well in their classes and then it, and then right before graduation it seems to pick up a little bit more. Yeah, it's interesting because you know you hear about all these um, issues surrounding how um, higher education, you know, the costs associated with that are so high right now and that it's um, really hard to get into um, these colleges. Um, so you would think that students would be more worried about doing well in school, you know, how, hmm. with all these added pressures and how no one is getting a job outside of college um, hmm. in today's times, you know, so you would think that it will actually decrease um, that perhaps all these uh, expectations and all these pressures will make them a little bit more responsible. But it seems like um, the rates of partying, um, you know, it's not really slowing down. No, not, I, not at all. And I, you know, and, Partying's been around forever. I mean, it's probably since the origins of, of colleges. Certainly, students have uh, released tension on weekends with alcohol and whatever drugs were, um, you know, fashionable <laughs> during during their times. But uh, what probably? I mean, and again, in my uh, research, I think what's becoming a little bit more prevalent is the pervasiveness of it because we've got so many more schools that are letting in students that probably never used to go to college. Uh-huh. So, right. you know, if, again, so it goes back to this idea of who schools are admitting. And um, when you just have a, a, a lot, a disproportionate number of students who really aren't in college to learn, which is the general premise of what a college is. I mean, yes, you, you need, you know, you're trained for a specific career and that kind of thing. But if you really, you, I think more and more students, are going to college not to learn, but simply because it's just what you do, mm-hmm. and and so they're just they're not really sure why they're in college, and so they're making choices of where to go to college based on a place where they're going to have a good time, versus a place where they're really going to be trained for a career or where they're going to learn a craft or what or whatever you know the the decision making processes. But there are really more more and more of these types of schools that seem to be disproportionately students who are coming in that just really want to party. Yeah. Or perhaps you know, they haven't really found a way uh, or a purpose um, and why they're, you know, in school for longer. Yeah. That makes sense. So I'm interested in knowing um, what are your students' reaction upon reading the book? Because I know um, for some of your classes, I think um, they're required to read the book, right? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, last semester I did actually for the first time. Well, I mean, the book hasn't been out that long, but uh, I, I, I I introduced the book in a criminology course, and we did a section on you know campus crime and and um, intoxication crimes, and um, they. I mean, nobody said anything bad about it. They didn't say, "Oh, what are you, are you kidding me?" I mean, so everything sort of was. I think they saw themselves to some degree in, in parts of the book, but I don't really, again, because they've normalized everything, I'm not sure if they really get why there's an entire book on it. <laughs> like, I just think it's, it's just so, nor- it's so blasé to them that they're not quite sure why anybody's talking about it. Yeah. Even um, if the facts are in front of you and they see, you know, I mean, your descriptions of all these events, um, some of them are really quite disturbing, you know? Um yeah, Absolutely. yeah, I, yeah. Well, well, again, to, to outside uh, to people outside of the party subculture, they seem disturbing. They certainly seem disturbing to me. But I, you know, if, if anything else, because I would share with them a lot of um, the narratives. Uh, you know, one of one of my favorite is the uh, the student who describes what he I think he's calling umpiring, where students get together and and on each side and just squeeze, you know, it slammed somebody into a yeah, wall and yeah. the kid fell out off a balcony. I mean, it was pretty, yeah, like it was window pretty, or something. Yeah. pretty crazy. And, you know, I would share that with them and they just all thought it was hysterical. <laughs> like, so, you know, I just, uh, yeah, it's hard. I don't, I'm, I, I, I think that this will, um, there's, they're too, they're too much in it right now. Like they're just so much a part of a party subculture that it's probably harder um, to actually think about it theoretically or to understand, you know, I mean, I, I think on the surface they understand the idea of the situational normativity, but um, I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I have mixed mixed review about how they uh, really um, thought of what they thought about the book and whether they really were engaged with the ideas that I was trying to lay out in terms of the theories. Yeah, perhaps you know, maybe later on when they're when they can actually step back and look. Up yeah, at it. yeah, yeah. I would, I would hope that so. <laughs> maybe someday. <laughs> but again, you know, they may say what what typically ends up happening, which is you you look back with very fond memories, and you think that those are some crazy days. Uh, you know, that's that is really what ends up happening. I mean, assuming that they don't, you know, something tragic doesn't happen in the process. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I think that's part of the the um, difficult thing about this. You know, I mean, you know, obviously college really is a wonderful time for a lot of people, and there are a lot of really um, fun and great memories. You know, but I think it's this balancing act between how can we keep not only ourselves safe, but everyone else around us, like you said, this, uh, the community safe as well. But at the same time, still have a really good time. You know, yeah, that's really yeah. The, res- the yeah the responsibility issue. Um, I think, and, and maybe that's why I, I'm. Uh, hesitant to, to to talk about how they responded because I do spend a lot of time on on secondhand harms, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's the problem they they seem to grasp, or the issue they they had trouble grasping is that what they do and they consider so much fun, mm-hmm. it's really not so much fun to the other people living in the town, and I think that's what they they don't quite get, and that might be a maturity level, or 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 maybe that does just require time 
and mm-hmm. someday when they're own when they own a house <laughs> and when they're raising kids and they realize that you know the party going on next door at four in the morning really isn't much fun, or you know having to clean up the vomit on your driveway the next day and all of these other issues that are really just impacting quality of life yeah. in the town. I mean that's probably now that now that we're talking this through, that's probably I think why they, they were um, a little mixed in their reactions is because I don't think they quite get yet <laughs> what the, the, the negative impact that this, this subculture is having on um, the community. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause, I mean, every, everywhere they look, their parents are doing exactly the same thing, you know? So I guess it's hard mm-hmm. for them to really see how it might impact um, another member of the community. Yeah, and, you know, and they come here and they feel very entitled. They are here to party, you know, and, and, <laughs> and so if you try and tell them to turn their music off at two in the morning, they're, it, why? You know, I'm not doing it. So in their mind, they're not doing anything wrong. You're the one who's doing something wrong because you're, you, you know, you should be partying. If yeah. you don't want to be partying, why are you here? Yeah, you're the and, party pooper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I think that that is probably something you just have to grow out of. You know, and I do talk about aging out of the partying um, in the book because a lot of the students who, when we actually ask point blank, and we say, you know, would you want to raise a family here? And they're like, hell no. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a place where you party and then you graduate and then you go, you you move on towards the real world because this really isn't their, this isn't a real world for them. This is, this is some make believe like interim um, place where they can be crazy and do, and, and, and I mean, literally act, act poorly. And there's little consequences for them here. And I think they do realize that someday there will be consequences, but it's not yet. Yeah, not right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Well, um, do you have any, I guess, main message or main concluding remark that you want our listeners to um, take away from your book? Oh, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure about the, the, the main message other than, you know, that, I mean, because I think I sort of lay out most everything that, you know, this is happening. I do, I do know that I struggled trying to make some grand conclusions and policy um, mm-hmm. um, recommendations. And I will say this, I am working on a second book with a colleague and we are actually addressing all of those issues in terms of um, the structural um, issues that sort of connect to the culture. And we're, we're doing a broader um, perspective on the actual conflicts in college towns and the communities and, and basing it more on, on structure and uh, and looking at policies. So, so yeah, I mean, hopefully I can connect it better in, in this future book. Um, and we'll see, because I do know that a lot of people really would like um, – to know what to do, but you know, I don't. I unfortunately don't have the answers. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll see if I can come up with a few more in the future. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It sounds great. You have to let me know when that book comes out. <laughs> I will certainly do that. Well, I think you know we've taken up um, a lot of your time, so thank you so much for being here um, and talking with us. I will thank you. It was, it was it was it was great to talk about the book. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the show. For more information about this podcast, please go to newbooksinalcoholdrugsintoxicants.com and please feel free to rate us on iTunes. Thank you.